For Australians whose first language is English, about 40% are considered as having adequate or good enough health literacy to get by or get through the medical system. But when it comes to culturally linguistically diverse people, so Australians whose first language isn't English, only about 25% have adequate health literacy. So that's 40 to 25%. Hello, Homo sapiens. This week is part two of two with behavioural scientist Eden Robertson from the University of New South Wales, talking about her results of the Gene Compass project and how to support caregivers of those with a developmental and epileptic encephalopathy. Eden speaks of what has already been learnt from the project, the benefits of altruism, and working towards health equity through learning and working with communities. I'm a behavioural scientist, so I work with understanding human behaviour, what people think, how they communicate, um, and, and what they do. And I work disease agnostically, so I work across all childhood chronic illnesses, but specifically focusing on the information needs of parents and young people um, regarding understanding their child or their own medical condition. So at the moment I work with the University of New South Wales and the Sydney Children's Hospitals Network with Elizabeth Palmer, um, an amazing clinical geneticist, looking to address the information needs of developmental and epileptic encephalopathy for caregivers. And for those who went here last week, what's it just, uh, if that is possible to tell us quickly, what is, uh, what are DEEs? Yes, the DEEs, the big, big mouthful yeah, developmental and epileptic they are the most severe group of epilepsies. <laughs> Um, the onset is typically in infancy or childhood and the seizures are drug resistant and what we see with these children is that they also have developmental slowing and regression or cognitive and cognitive impairment and that's both due to the epileptic activity as well as the underlying condition. The work that you are doing and have been doing um, with Emma and your other colleagues, how is your research and, and what you are writing, um, how is that positively impacting the families? But what we're seeing at the moment is really three main benefits or positive impacts. So the first is really just what we would expect is the value of the information from the report. So caregivers are feeling more confident in understanding their child's condition and they're, they're valuing understanding kind of the background a bit further and where we're at with the current research and feeling as though they've had the pressure taking off them, off them for a certain time period of feeling to need to stay abreast of all of the current research opportunities. That's the first one, the benefit of the actual reports that we're sending back. The second benefit was actually quite unexpected. Um, we didn't hypothesise this as coming through, but several of the caregivers who submitted back um, feedback to us had never submitted a question and had never received a report, but they rated Gene Compass as extremely beneficial and really highly. And when we explored that a bit further through qualitative research and through interviews, what we found is that parents valued having something or knowing there was something there should they need it. So at this point, you know, we had families who had had child diagnosed 10, 15 years ago, so not in the early stages. They thought they didn't have any questions at that point, but they really valued that if they did, there was something there to kind of support them. Um, which they hadn't felt before. And I think also they commented that they appreciated that there was something being done to support caregivers of a child with a DEE. They felt that there wasn't necessarily as much support out there for them. So knowing that there was researchers and clinicians focusing on supporting them, um, I think was a, was a benefit, knowing that there was, they could feel progress in this field. Um, the third one was something that comes up quite a lot in psychosocial research, which is kind of psychosocial research is kind of looking more about the quality of life as opposed to kind of clinical benefits. Psychosocial research, we see 
um, the benefit of altruism. So caregivers talked about, I wanted to participate in your study because I wanted to contribute to something that will help future families. And that in itself, you know, when we look at the literature, altruism is, is a real benefit. It's not something that it's just a nice to have. It's, you know, quite common. And so families feeling as though they're giving back to the, to the research and to clinicians that have helped them, I think, has been kind of a benefit has come up quite a lot. Yeah. Do you know, on the dark side, I said to a um, friend recently, I was doing something for somebody, they said, oh my goodness, you're so kind. And I said, no, like, don't worry, it's not really, it's just it feels really good to be altruistic, so it's really quite selfish, to be honest. <laughs> and they're like, oh God, you like, take it away, man, you know? I thought you were being nice, but... I think it's it's a very beneficial, it's very beneficial for coping. Yeah. I think, you know, especially with DEs, when the child, you know, when there are no cures available, Families want to feel more control about what's happening. And if they can feel control in regards to the type of research uh, contributions, I think that's something it helps them cope and has, I suppose in a way, it's that silver lining for a lot of families. And we see this across all types of illnesses, um, and especially with the most severe illnesses. You know, I've talked to a lot of bereaved parents. Contributing to research for them is really beneficial in their grieving process. And I think, you know, we see a similar thing with caregivers of a child with a GE. And sometimes I think you just, well, you don't have to know the person or the people that you might be helping, but if you know for certain that you are helping another human out there, it gives you that nice gooey feeling and some sort of purpose and something to focus on when the alternative is something pretty horrific. Hmm, that's right. So when we had our first chat, we were talking about diverse communities and different groups of people. And I understand that you've been doing some work into uh, working with different groups. Could you tell us about that, please? Yes. I, I wouldn't say I, I'm doing work. I'm not necessarily focusing on this group. And I think it's something that needs more to be done. So okay. when we talk about psychosocial research, yes, yeah, so when we talk about psychosocial research, it's so important um, for, for diseases that there are no cures currently possible. We need to be focusing more on the quality of life. Yeah. But when it comes to that, there is issues with equity in psychosocial research. So we struggle, you know, culturally, linguistically diverse populations are severely underrepresented in psychosocial research. Mm -hmm. um, you know, across Australia, it's a really multicultural country. So we've got a, a third of Australians are bought overseas and a fifth of Australians speak a language other than English at home. Pretty cool. <laughs> Yet they're still really underrepresented. And that makes it difficult for us as researchers to develop culturally appropriate interventions. So I think for Gene Compass, yes, we were an information linker service, but it's not necessarily enough for us to just translate the reports we've written for a different language. We really need to be going back to those communities and talking to them to say, is this a type of service that you would want? How would you want us to address information needs? You know, I think that's something for us to consider. But, you know, with information provision, Culturally, linguistically diverse populations have that additional barrier of poorer health literacy. So for Australians whose lang first language is English, about 40% are considered as having adequate or good enough health literacy to get by or get through the medical system. But when it comes to culturally, linguistically diverse people, so Australians whose first language isn't English, only about 25% have adequate health literacy. So that's 40 to 25%. So, you know, for Australians whose first language is English, it's not great, <laughs> but then, you know, for culturally linguistically diverse families, they need even more support. So, like I said, having that translated document, it may not necessarily be enough 
to communicate clearly and help those families feel confident in caring for their child. So I, I do think that future researchers need to focus on that rather than just adapting, rather than just kind of having a sub-study for their project, they need to really be focusing on these populations and developing interventions fit for purpose. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, with Gene Compass, we thought, oh, you know, I'm really passionate about advocating for the voice of Arabic-speaking Muslim families. And so we thought, why don't we translate or we invite Arabic-speaking families to Gene Compass and then they can have their reports in Arabic. But in hindsight, it wasn't enough to do that. We really needed to go back to those communities and talk to community leaders and ask them how do they want information provision and how do they want us to address their information needs. And is, is there, for them, is, is, that a, is that a need, a priority for, the, for them to support their child? Or is it something else we need to be focusing on? So I think, you know, really need to be going back to basics. Because they're underrepresented in research, is this even a need for them or a priority for them? Or do we need to be focusing on something else for those communities? Yeah, and if we don't ask, we don't know. But we need to ask in the right way <laughs> and ask the right questions to get the answers we want, right? That's right. What are we going to do to achieve that, do you think? What are, what are the next steps for doing that? Is it getting sort of leaders from these communities involved to know what steps to take, first of all? Yes, I think there's a big push in health at the moment about consumer-led research. I think that's, that's something that we need to be really harnessing a lot more. So I think not only do you know, preclinical and clinical researchers need to be collaborating with psychosocial researchers like myself, but we also need to be collaborating more with community leaders and communities with consumer-led research. And I think it's not enough to just ask someone random off the street to be involved in our research. We really need to be upskilling and providing the mentoring and support for consumers to be involved in an effective way. I think it's like that thing that we were talking about last episode, Tori, about learned helplessness. We don't want to invite someone in and make them feel like they don't understand what's going on. We want to empower them to be a leader in this regard. So I think we need to kind of, rather than, you know, we really need to be going back to step one rather than saying we need to involve consumers. We need to be giving consumers the skills to be involved. So it needs to be kind of, it's a long haul process. Um, but I do think that if we can bridge those silos between preclinical, clinical and psychosocial research, that is definitely the first step. I think psychosocial research, it's not that well funded and we need to be understanding that with diseases without cures, like DEs, we need to be focusing on the quality of life of these families so they can live their best possible lives and we need funding to do that. Um, and involving psychosocial research teams to address those communities and their needs, I think, is is the first step. So for any politicians listening, uh, <laughs> despite the fact that um, these uh, DEEs are rare and individual ones very rare, cumulatively, they're not so rare and they don't solely affect the, the child with the diagnosis. They affect their whole family, um, which affects the health of the population and it affects the economy um, as a whole. So really... Cumulatively, financially, it's of real benefit to be funding greater research into this, I believe. Thank you to Eden for part two of her fab insight into the needs of caregivers of children with a developmental and epileptic encephalopathy, plus insight into the work needed to help caregivers who aren't yet supported in the culturally and linguistically diverse nation of Australia. 
Also, thank you for educating us just a little on the work and value of a behavioural scientist. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook or Instagram. And I'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show. Please subscribe to Epilepsy Sparks Insights on your podcast app so that you will never miss the weekly episode. I'm Tori Robinson. Thanks for listening.